When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from creative and curious minds. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm really happy to be speaking with Krista Tippett. She's the Peabody award-winning host of the radio program and podcast On Being, in which she and her guests discuss the deeper mysteries of the universe and human existence, which can be difficult things to talk about. Her new book is called Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. It distills and organizes some of the insights she's gained over 12 years of talking to spiritual, scientific, artistic, and social pioneers about many, many, many things, but maybe fundamentally about how to live a good life. Welcome to Think Again, Krista. I'm so glad to be with you. I, I wanted to start with a quote from a quote. <laughs> so it's a, it's a Flannery O'Connor quote that you quote in the book from an interview with, I believe, Robert Coles. Mm-hmm. Um, Flannery O'Connor, for those who, who might not know, is a Southern Gothic author. Uh, she wrote sort of novellas that are extraordinary. Um, the quote is, the task of the novelist is to deepen mystery, but mystery is a great embarrassment to the modern mind. And yeah. one of the things that's interesting to me about what you do, and I think that you do it extraordinarily well, it's very hard to do, is that you talk about these mysteries of the human spirit, I think it's really hard to talk about mystery because, <laughs> right. right? I mean, don't mm-hmm. isn't there a problem there or some sort of paradox there? there? There is totally a paradox. You are always trying to talk about, you're trying to put words around something which always ultimately defies words. But, you know, another of my favorite quotes is uh, St. Augustine, and I think he said it this way, you know, we speak, nevertheless, in order not to remain altogether silent. (laughs) Like, on the one hand, it's an impossible and sure to be imperfect quest, but on the other hand, what is there to speak about that's more fascinating and that stretches us more interestingly? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you you talk a lot about this in the book and how 
modern discourse uh, in the media and um, I don't know in public life tends to be economically based or based yeah. in facts and figures and we don't talk about love and human connections and sort of the deeper things that actually really matter in our lives because they're difficult to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a 20th century mindset that Flannery O'Connor was pointing out. And, you know, we really wanted to kind of bracket mystery out and bracket out a lot of the inherent irrationality and messiness of, of human existence for understandable reasons. I mean, you know, it gets us into trouble. Right. Uh, <laughs> and and I think there was this hubris in the 20th century that somehow with our technologies and with our systems and with our facts, we would be able to to create order, and we would be able to create this trajectory of progress. Right. And and now we kind of do that with data, right? Like if we could just get the right data, if we could get the right data set, right, right, <laughs> we we will be able to get our arms around it. But I kind of feel like we're at this interesting, really interesting moment where. Mm, our technologies have so outstripped just the pace of our bodies and minds and they are so wondrous and the world is so connected and the problems are so, or the challenges are so existential that in fact we are turned back to ourselves, right? Like if, in fact, yeah. we realize that if we're going to solve the problem of climate change or you know, what an economy is for, or what politics can possibly look like, we're going to have to look inside, right? And we're going to have to actually honor our ir irrationality right. and our messiness and walk with it and become more whole and become more, not just more intelligent, but more wise. I mean, one of the things I have thought so much about, and as you say, I mean, I've worked so much on this because to talk about this subject in a way that has any kind of integrity, you know, intellectual integrity, or I think even really spiritual integrity, you have to be, you have to honor the limits of words and, and at the same time, take them so seriously and take such care with them. You know, and, and it's weird. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit from my personal perspective here just yeah. because I feel like these are personal subjects and mm. one's reaction to them matters. Like yes. I, where I recoil is that, so my intellect wants to give mystery its due. I want mystery to be mystery. I like it expressed through literature and poetry, which are things you talk about in the book, how sometimes those alternative languages are the most useful way to talk, talk about these things. And I recoil when very positive people and very smart people are talking about love and fellowship and community and all of these <laughs> things, which I think are, yeah. are essential, as mm -hmm. you say, to solving our problems. But you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be the person. I don't want to recoil for intellectual reasons or something, but somehow it's not subtle enough or something. Yeah, right. It's not subtle and it's not paradoxical, as paradoxical <laughs> as those things always are. Yeah, because, well, we have very flimsy vocabularies. I mean, partly because we don't practice talking about this in interesting ways. We don't practice actually talking about these things in public. We're not quite sure they're respectable, but then as a result, we haven't, we haven't put complex and, and robust and, you know, we haven't put words around them that, that are big enough or that even begin to point at all the many layers of these things. But, you know, 
I'm always kind of doing two things at once, like with mystery, you know, what I want to say, what I, what I think we have to re, you know, take in is that mystery is a common human experience. Right? It's not something over there. It's not something that only deeply religious people experience. I mean, you know, the, the word mystery is used in my interviews more by scientists than anyone. Now, huh. they may not be imbuing mystery with the same kind of supernatural transcendence that, that a religious person might use the word. But right. they're, they're actually talking about the same thing, right? They, they're apprehending something. Um, and, and mystery, right? I mean, when we, when we are born or give birth or or are sick, or, you know, when we experience the kinds of losses that actually are what make up a life as much as, you know, you know, it's right, that, it's right. that dialectic of losing and, and loving and finding. And, and in fact, this, I think what is one of the most mysterious things of all about human existence, that we are, you know, that we are made by what would break us repeatedly, that this strange thing that, that life is hard and that you know that the only the only guarantee we will have <laughs> is that even at our moments of greatest accomplishment th- that something will always happen that we didn't expect and R- sometimes right. it will be catastrophic and but i mean the, the the only good news is that that will happen when things are going badly as well as when things <laughs> are going well right right um uh so it is a common human experience and somehow those moments of disruption of personal disruption also are these great fertile fields of self-knowledge. You know, most of us, and the older you grow, the more true this is, when you talk about the moments that where you have kind of become who you are, it's those moments where things break open and you have to make sense as opposed to just, you know, merely succeeding or merely surviving. So I kind of want to, I want us to like bring something like mystery down to earth. I want us to, to demystify it at the same time that I want us to honor it and revere it. You know, that, that brings us pretty organically to a quote. And you divide your book into five sections, which you talk about as sort of the raw materials of living. And the second one is the body or flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had hoped you could read us a short paragraph from there, which I think will take us in a related but slightly different direction. Yeah, thanks for asking me to read this paragraph. Our bodies tell us the truth of life that our minds can deny, that we are in any moment as much about softness as fortitude, always in need of care and tenderness. Life is fluid, evanescent, evolving in every cell, in every breath, never perfect. To be alive is by definition messy, always leaning towards disorder and surprise. How we open or close to the reality that we never arrive at safe, enduring stasis is the matter, the raw material of wisdom. It seems to me that there is a hunger in our time for honesty and transparency and unedittedness about yes. all of that. And, and yet that seems to exist in tension still with this kind of very competitive strain in our nature. Yeah, well, it exists in a tension with a competitive strain in our nature. And it also is true that those competitive muscles, if you will, are what get trained <laughs> culturally. That, that part of us is nurtured and, and educated. 
right. and practiced by necessity. But, you know, the, the bottom line here is that actually acknowledging mystery is actually becoming more reality-based, right? Right. And that those measures of success that I find, especially new generations, you know, the hypocrisy, right? The the loneliness that was built into the ways we've defined these things and, you know, fed this competitive part of us, the part of us that defines success by cutting off. It's a success that only, that doesn't engage all of our selves. And in fact, that forces us to kind of hide or keep in the dark these softer searching places of ourselves that, you know, to hide or keep in the dark what in fact is wrong or imperfect or, you know, we're not good at or what's going wrong. Yeah. And so we're, we're actually, we're impoverished and I actually really value, like, I mean, all words are in danger of overuse, even especially the, the ones we need the most. So, but, but I think this language, right. you know, language like transparency and authenticity and integrity that the new generations are injecting into the vocabulary are a way to try to get at that, to try to insist on it. You know, my hope is these generations will also insert those values, <laughs> and, but also have to practice them, also have to figure out what does that look like? Right. What does yeah. that look like to insert these things and, you know, maybe not be successful um, by the same definition, but still, you know, be flourish. Right. Be flourishing and resilient and, and right. have, have a generative life that you're pleased with. I think now would be a good time to move on to the second half of our show okay. where the conversation goes in totally unknown directions. All right. So have you seen these videos? I have, I have not. Um, uh, they were chosen okay. by our producers who know our <laughs> archives well. They right? could be on any subject. And the thing is, this is not you know, a test of any kind. It's, if anything, it's like a Rorschach test. You know, it goes where it goes. Um, you know, the, we, we'll see these things and we'll bounce off them however we do. Okay. So the first one, Amy Cuddy, social psychologist, um, <laughs> okay. want All to right. be. Uh, <laughs> I was just reading about her last night. Okay. And the video is called Want to Be Your Authentic Self Get to Know Your Beliefs, Values, and Abilities. The most important thing, I think, is to know what are your biggest challenges. Now, you probably can come up with some off the top of your head, but there might be some that you're not even really aware of until you're in them. So I think one way to get at that is to really pay attention to your body. What are the, what's happening in the moments when you tend to slouch and wrap yourself up? What's happening when you start to breathe shallowly and quickly? What's happening when you start to sweat? You know, what are the things that are happening in the situation at those moments when you're showing physical signs of stress and anxiety and depression and powerlessness. So once you've sort of identified what's happening in the situation when those things happen, uh, you start to become much more attuned to those bodily cues. And so when they happen in the future, you can correct, you can sort of course correct earlier. Honestly, what she just described is the neuroscience of <laughs> that line that I just read, that thing you and I have been talking about, right. that our bodies tell the truth of life that our right. minds deny, <laughs> which is so interesting that, you know, you didn't choose that 
while you also chose the passage. Yeah, I mean, no, and they don't know. Yeah, the people who chose that had yeah. no idea that I chose that passage. So yeah. I mean, I guess what I would nuance. So I think every, you know, what she's saying is true. Um, well, I guess I have trouble with the word true, right? Because it's about your true self. How I would want to nuance that is that, so this is kind of acknowledging our vulnerabilities in order to overcome them, which is a very American move to make. Right. And again, it, it's not that there's anything wrong in that, but it's not completely sustainable. And I, I think our true self is both vulnerable and powerful. <laughs> so I think our true self would have as part of its sense of wholeness whatever that depression or that fear or just I don't know I'd like I think some days I'm just tired and I'm not going to have a Wonder Woman stance because I don't feel like it right because I, right. because it might not be relaxing <laughs> a long long time ago um a friend of mine from high school when we went to college I I lost him he died um and oh. I remember very vividly interacting with people at his funeral and there was a very reflexive and I think very American reaction that I was getting from them which was like multiple people told me I needed to compartmentalize this, I needed mm. to find a place to put it and move on, I needed to bury myself in my work. Like why can't you mourn? Right. <laughs> you know, well, if you're mourning. Only, it is a part of life. And what we know from personal experience is that you don't get around mourning by not, the grief right, by not right, mourning. Right. You just defer it. I mean, it's still part of you. If you don't walk through it, you carry it with you. And then it comes out in all kinds of weird yeah. ways mm -hmm. and inappropriate times. And But I do, I mean, what I do agree with is that the body, you know, as you write, gives us very clear clues of where we're at and what's going on with us. Yes, and we're learning that in, in, so, in so many ways, through so many parts of science and social science and, and Amy Cuddy, right? I mean, they're just all these different, it's like this great frontier of ourselves that we're on. So it's kind of an amazing moment. One other anecdote I'll share in case it takes us somewhere. Um, it reminds me of something in your book. You talk a lot about um, the, this community. I'm, why am I forgetting the name? It's a French name. Oh, uh, the, the L'Arche. Yeah, L'Arche yeah. community, which is where people with disabilities and people without are living together um, yes. and normalizing relations and, and, and like sharing life, you know, which is just very different from putting people in the institution or some other setting where they're separated out or passed by. But um, years ago, I, I worked in a community outreach theater. I was like an intern there and I was very young. And most of the kids, you know, it was like kids from inner city Washington, D.C. And there would also be like women who had suffered domestic violence that would come in for workshops. I was in a workshop with kids from inner city DC and I remember very, very vividly one of the longtime performers with the company coming over to me like early on in this workshop where you were just, we were just kind of improvising. We were supposed to be in this space together and there was music and everyone was just supposed to move and kind of figure <laughs> things out and was just like, you're not right, man. You're not right. And like, like your body's not right, you know, and just made, had me go chill in the corner. And I thought about it for, you know, I've thought about it for years since. And indeed, like, 
I was not at ease. I was not myself in that space, and my body was hunched over and tight and reflecting it. You know, and I and I didn't know that because I was too young. We've um, we've so privileged our minds and and you know talking things through, <laughs> and it's kind of a relief to say, oh, you know, that there's to, to realize that all of the things we we think we can talk through are also lodged in our bodies and that when we take care of our bodies and I think for me that also means honoring whatever you know whatever is by definition flawed but is just is the way we are right so seeing right. seeing that as part of our wholeness that's that's also a way to address a lot of things that we've that we've just seen as strictly emotional or strictly mental right i just think one of that line of in mary oliver's poem wild geese which is just such a perfect line you know let the soft animal of your body love what it loves <laughs> uh, you know that gets at the fullness of like what our bodies love and what they crave and and yeah what, right what feeds them i wonder whether like i mean more and more people are living in cities and i wonder whether living in urban spaces as opposed to like mary oliver who lives you know out in mm -hmm. nature and walks every day I wonder whether that changes our relationship to our body, like being on subways. And I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does, but I, I think, well, and this may be partly, well, I was going to say this is a thing of privilege, but it's not just a thing of privilege. I mean, I think one of the interesting things you see happening is people in cities finding ways to bring ecology and like bring the natural world you know, in into the city, right? I mean, these That's urban true. gardens and, and even just, you know, even going to yoga or going to CrossFit. I mean, it's, it's yeah. artificial compared to laboring in the fields <laughs> for 10 hours a day. But it's, it's still giving our bodies what we know and what we need. Okay. I, I think we should, let's, let's move on and see what the second video is. Okay. So this one is Russell Simmons. Um, <laughs> the music entrepreneur. Um, it is called Donald Trump is the white male privilege candidate. So let's, let's see you where know, we... I, I'm in public radio, so I have absolutely no political opinions. You realize that, don't you? Uh, well, well, we'll see about that, won't we? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, so yeah, I'm going to start it now. Okay. Yoga and meditation inform your diet because it's mindfulness. And when you are awake and aware of what's going on, you, you obviously make better choices. And certainly, you know, you can feel if you're sensitive. I mean, your, your physical asana practice or the entire spiritual yoga practice informs how you relate to the world. I mean, the first thing in yoga, in the eight parts of yoga, is ahimsa, non-harming. And... No one with good sense or no one who's aware of their footprint would ever eat an animal. No one who's aware and gave any thought to or just came from you know, what's etched inside them, this spiritual or this piece of God that's etched inside them, this thing would inform them. If they sat in stillness, made their own decisions, they wouldn't do it. So your diet would change. That's challenging. 
Yeah, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Donald Trump, so <laughs> I'm going to have to <laughs> figure out why, why, why the video is called that. Um, maybe it's part of a longer <laughs> video. At any rate, what is rubbing me the wrong way is that he's so definitive and certain and kind of dismissive of people who might not have the same spiritual worldview that he seems to have arrived at. Yeah, I read that. And no one would ever. That's a big statement. Yeah. Just kind of coming from where we where we were before, I do love how he's pointing out the fact that yoga in its origins is not exercise, although that's how we treat it. And actually, that's how I treat it a lot of the time. I do hot yoga, right? Right. Um, but that it was a precursor. It was like a, it was a precondition to actually settle, settling your body so that you could work on your consciousness. I, I feel like the word mindfulness in English, it distorts actually what it's talking about because the concept is really, it completely integrates your senses. We've kind of narrowed it to mindfulness. But right. yeah, then to go from there. But you know, it's a good example of how, you know, somebody can be not just talking about mindfulness, but embodying that spirit. I don't know what I, I don't I don't want to make the move that I'm criticizing, okay, or, or that okay. I'm that I'm that I'm noting. But he's he's ending up kind of denouncing most of us, right? Right. <laughs> That's a, do you that, do you eat, do you eat animals? Yeah, I yeah, do. Yeah, me too. And I I actually think it may be that a couple hundred or thousand years on in our species, I don't know, maybe one day we will make a, a collective uh, leap to say that there's something, you know, so I, he, right. may be, he may be right, mm, but I don't think those kinds of statements serve the purpose of the spirit in which, you know, they Yeah, arise. you know where I want to go with this? Actually, it's bringing me back to something in your book, like maybe in the words section, you have a wonderful section where you're talking about people who hate each other or people who just deeply disagree with each other trying to talk across divides. And specifically, yeah. you reference the abortion issue or um, you actually talk about the word issue as well uh, <laughs> a lot in the book. So I'm like yeah. reluctant to use that word because it's it oversimplifies things. But um, I was thinking about that because it's something that troubles me a lot. And this may bring us to Trump, actually. I mean, in this political season, I'm thinking a lot about people who think in a radically different way than I do or whose values are just completely different from mine. And I mean, I can have a conversation with somebody who believes that abortion is a sin simply because, I mean, I, I can understand if somebody sees human life beginning at the very beginning of conception and doesn't feel that we have a right to terminate that. I mean, that's that's not that's not beyond my ability to comprehend where where they're coming from. But yeah. people who believe that the world was created 2000 years ago um, or who fundamentally believe something that is like that, I just don't see any room for like like neither negotiation nor what you describe in the book as like understanding across difference or something. Right. I think those are the op only options we give ourselves and and then we end up you know seeing ourselves on 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 the other side of a chasm because we cannot see any common ground because we cannot fathom or find a way to 
agree with or interact with that position, right? Then we feel we feel disconnected from those people. Um, but to live in this world of difference, and and I mean, you know, difference in positions and values as well as difference of every other kind. One goal that we can have is just to be in relationship, and also to understand, to acknowledge that that we make that move all the time in our families and in our closest circles of friends. Right. Right. All the time. There are people who, there are people in those closest intimate circles around us who we have so much in common with, and there are also people who drive us crazy at least part of the time, and the people with whom there are certain subjects we, we choose not to discuss Right. Because we care about them, right? Because we have chosen to be in relationship with them. Right. Um, but we don't make that move with strangers. But given the fact that mm, in our, you know, in this interconnected world, we actually have to craft the future with strangers. Yeah. I think that's a move we, we have to learn to get comfortable with. And so, yeah, so I think you and I are both reacting to then when somebody says, no one who is mindful would ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's a little hard to, to walk across that divide. Yes, and it lacks that kind of spirit of trying to understand or remain in relation um, that you're talking about. And like, what makes it difficult with strangers, and the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it, on the contrary, but what makes it difficult, it takes time and it takes work. I mean, I'm thinking about the people in my family who have very strong political differences from, like it's taken us years to get to the point where we can even sort of talk around or near those subjects and, you know, to have five minutes with a stranger on Facebook, it's harder. I mean, I think a stranger is also an abstraction, but in walking with the challenges we face, and it might be, you know, not necessarily like global challenges that it's hard to know what we can do, but, but you know, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, right. I think there are lots of strangers, people we don't know, people we're not actually sure how to get to know, who we would identify as on the other side of this issue or that, or this this way of seeing the world or that, but who, with whom, what what we might have in common with them is are some questions, <laughs> like like we might have a lot of answers that contradict each other, <laughs> right, right. But we might have some questions we share, and uh, I mean that's kind of an interesting way to think about because we we tend to navigate everything in terms of competing answers, and competing positions, and then we you know we enshrine the most certain the loudest and most certain and most strident of those positions, and we let them duke it out. Right. But, you know, what if we could find ways to come into conversation, come into relationship with people with whom we have some questions in common, and just kind of go with that. Let that be our common ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's... But at least for a little while. Okay. So kind of want to keep going on on with this one, but... Let's do justice to the uh, to the producers who have painstakingly chosen three clips for us and see the third one, which is Max Bazerman, who's a professor and author on decision-making, negotiation, and ethics. Yeah, let's see what, what he's got to say to us. When we look at this story, pretty clear data and courts of law have determined that Madoff acted in both illegal but also in unethical ways. And it's pretty clear that he 
had a good idea of the illegal and unethical actions that he was taking. From the perspective of blind spots, however, a far more interesting group of people to think about in the Madoff scandal are the feeder funds, the organizations out there that were selling investors um, basically the opportunity to invest in Madoff's funds. And many of these feeder funds had employees with substantial financial knowledge, very smart people, very talented people, um, who somehow just didn't notice that Madoff's uh, returns were impossible under any reasonable set of financial uh, assumptions. So Blindspots is interested in how do we not notice? How do we not see the data? And what we believe is going on is that when people have a motivated desire to not notice, and in the case of the feeder funds, they were making tremendous amounts of money by selling Madoff's investments, we have a an enormous ability to not see data that, in retrospect, was obvious and we should have become aware of. I can babble a bit, or did you have anything that, well, like, yeah, immediately grabbed you? Yeah, why don't you start you? this time? What did All you right. hear <laughs> okay. in that? I don't know. I mean, I was just, you know, it actually brought me back to the kind of, to the politics right now where... Like, I, I have a number of friends who are extremely shrill on the pro-Bernie <laughs> side of the right. Bernie slash Hillary thing. Yeah. Um, and on Facebook, you know, one friend in particular who I love dearly, who is very, very intense and rabid, posting constantly with data and and information. And I've engaged him in dialogue, and it's been wonderful, actually, after being kind of afraid to even talk to him about this stuff because I didn't know where it was going to go. And he's got all this data. He's got all this information backing up very, very clear positions. And some of it I find convincing, and some of it I don't. I just find it really interesting in the way, like, when we're trying to talk about anything serious, like people say, look at the facts, look at the facts, you know, go look yeah, it right, up, right, you know? Right, right. And, and then you find yourself down this rabbit hole of like, okay, I've read 15 articles that, that you've sent me and, and yet I'm still within this framework that I kind of was in before. I don't know, I don't know if that takes us anywhere. <laughs> that, that. No, no, that's similar to where I went. Right, well, so just, I mean, a fact is not necessarily the same as the truth. I mean, facts okay. may add up to the truth, they may illuminate the truth, they may be building blocks of the truth, but truth is complicated. It also has a subjective, there's a subjective experience of it as well. What I think is interesting about that clip is that he is, he's critiquing a moral failing and pointing out the truth, the fact that people should have seen what the data was telling them. Right. And analyzing or, you know, revealing the fact that people acted by ignoring the data, but then suggesting that the data is the solution, right? <laughs> like somehow he's, right, saying, right, right, right. he's saying that, so what people should do is pay attention to the data. But, but the underlying dynamic is that data does not animate human minds and hearts. Right. And it doesn't animate moral imagination. It's like what you said. We can huh. we can manipulate any data and any fact. So why do we never talk about what is at the bottom of that, which is human desire and anxiety and fear and longing and aspiration? And and that those are the things that we could become more articulate about and more conscious of and more conscious of in each other. And, you know, if we acknowledge that we make our decisions 
It's just like since 2008, this whole field of behavioral economics has been invented. So like that economics is a perfect example of the 20th century. They treated economics like an empirical science. Yeah. And in fact, it all comes down to human motivations and human blind spots and human, you know, greed and survival and all these things that you can't contain in facts or data and that aren't in fact touched or measured by them. I think that there is, I think that the impulse behind the kind of data obsession, aside from the technology existing to collect big data, is about eliminating error from human life. You know, this belief that somehow the data will save us from making fools of ourselves. And eliminating irrationality. Yeah. Or presuming presuming that there is such a thing as rationality. Right. If only you get the, get the data right, that's what you'll bring out in people. And it just never works that way. So there's something really irrational about constantly about not only telling ourselves that story, but but these really smart people at Harvard who <laughs> still want to explain the world in terms of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean at the same time though, right? I mean if if we can put the human heart aside for a moment, let's let's look at the human brain. You know, if indeed there are these like cognitive tendencies that we have, these blind spots, for example, the sunk cost fallacy, right? If I've spent a lot of money on something or I've invested a lot of hours in something, I'm I will think, oh, I ought to keep doing it rather than cutting my losses and, and moving on. You know, if these mm-hmm. things are tendencies that our brains have and the data can in some way sometimes help us to recognize that that shouldn't be a bad thing should it no but i i don't think the data alone i mean i think even to summon the self-knowledge and the humility and the will to see our own blind spots right i think that's what we're talking about summoning in order for the data to become useful in that way right we're still still talking about working on a different part of ourselves. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That you know, um, go I mean, ahead. I just no. interv- yeah, well, I just interviewed this woman. I think she's also at Harvard, who, who helped create this field of implicit bias. Right. What they have shown, and this is another way to talk about what he's talking about, but I think in a more nuanced way, that our brains are constantly creating patterns, and so even when there's a break in what we can know our brains actually fill in the picture and it fills it in in ways that make sense to us. And we do that with other people and we do that with political issues, right? And we do it with economic decisions. But I I do think that this kind of knowledge about ourselves is, is a form of power. But again, you know, to to, to look at the data itself, to, to see this and then say, but if, if you'd only pay attention to the data, seems to me to not be even really logical. Although I, yeah. it's wishful thinking, like we'd like the world to work that way. We would. Well, and I think also the danger is using this model of human cognition. The danger is to see other people in terms of their rationality or irrationality or errors or whatever, as opposed to going back full circle, what I think your book is talking about, what I think your show is about, connecting with other people. You made me think when we were talking earlier, like I used the word strangers, and you got me thinking the way you responded to that, like about how quickly that word comes to my tongue. 
yet, you know, like it's that idea of strangers that that is partly the problem. The other. Yeah. Right. It's I think it's counterintuitive to say this, but I think it's true that acknowledging the kinds of things we've been talking about, you know, mystery, the mystery of us, um, that, that spiritual life at its best is, or at its, at its most intentional, is, is about actually is the most reality-based thing we can do, right? Because it, it is about, bef- about really deciding to see reality full on. It's about befriending reality. Our spiritual traditions have a, a richer vocabulary of like paradox <laughs> and um, and a kind of psychological acuity that is lacking, that has been lacking in a lot of the disciplines, like this, you know, various social sciences, um, yeah. including things like po- economics or like political sciences that we've taken very seriously, and we should take them seriously. It's just that. They're not telling us the whole story of ourselves, and there's, they're not telling us the whole story of our true motivations, of our inner lives, which so determine our outer lives. So all I'm talking about is actually, I think, um, you know, kind of pulling back and making a—it's not simple in that way, but making this accessible move of looking at the, the root source <laughs> of our presence in the world— Right. Rather than coming up with all these, with we're trying to rely on what feel like more empirical, more rational, maybe you know feel like more reliable tools for getting ourselves, for understanding ourselves, and getting ourselves under control, but actually will just lead us astray and lead to frustration and lead us to be shocked every time a Bernie Madoff comes along, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that I think that's a good place to leave this this wonderful conversation. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being on Think Again and you know taking the being vulnerable to all of these surprise videos with me. It's been a great conversation, and as you know, there's nothing I think is a greater adventure than a good conversation. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for listening. And I wanted to I wanted to give a special thanks to those people who have been following us for a while now um, and saying nice things about us on Twitter and iTunes and wherever else they're listening. Uh, your comments and your support means everything to me. Uh, the show has been running for almost exactly a year now, and it has been an incredible journey, and it could not happen, and it certainly cannot continue without you. So, thank you. Uh, Next week, I'm joined by comedian Jim Gaffigan. See you then.